Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, a new show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director and the producer of this series, bringing you conversation and debate from the world's most insightful thinkers. For 20 years, the author and activist Michael Pollan has been writing about the places where the human and natural worlds intersect including, most famously, in his acclaimed books on the ethics and ecology of food. That path recently led him to investigate the role of mind-altering drugs in human culture, a journey that climaxed in Michael volunteering himself as a guinea pig for several therapeutically guided LSD trips. In this week's episode, presenter Matthew Stadlin and I take a trip of the more familiar kind, visiting Michael in his hotel room, to find out more about the new science of psychedelics. Michael, I don't imagine you've reached a totally settled view yet on psychedelics, but could we begin at the end of at least the journey in the book? Can you give us in synopsis form what you do think of psychedelics? (laughs) (laughs) I think psychedelics are uh, very useful tools for several things. I think they have potentially great promise as a therapeutic agent to help us deal with various forms of mental illness and distress, from depression uh, and anxiety to addiction, possibly eating disorders and other forms of uh, stuck thinking. And anxiety about death, for example, if you've got cancer in your terminal patient. Particularly anxiety about death. Some of the most moving work that's been done in the research to date has been giving psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, to people with cancer diagnoses. And it had remarkable success lifting the the siege of their anxiety and fear. That's quite remarkable. We have very little to offer people in that situation. Uh, I think they also may prove to be valuable tools in understanding consciousness. Uh, which science to date has a lot of trouble uh, getting anywhere with. But one way to understand any complex system is to disturb it. And that's certainly what psychedelics do to normal waking consciousness. And lastly, I think they have value as a tool for people who are not ill in any diagnosable way as a means of uh, personal growth, spiritual exploration, and, you know, the anyone interested in really exploring the, the landscape of their own minds. You find yourself using hackneyed phrases in the book, phrases that are cliche, and yet they kind of come real for you. You, you, you point to yourself and say, can't quite believe I'm saying this, I'm going on yeah. this spiritual journey or whatever. But you, you had some rather positive outcomes. I did. Uh, and, you know, it, I mean... To cite one example of what you're you're talking about, the, one of the classic epiphanies that people have on LSD or psilocybin is the importance of love, and that love is the most important principle in the universe. Now, this sounds like the kind of sentiment you could put on a Hallmark card. On the other hand, it's also true. <laughs> so how do you well, navigate that true, as a writer? <laughs> cliches often have a, a, a kernel of truth. We protect ourselves against that through our sense of irony and and uh, but that's kind of you know that's our ego i think defending ourselves against strong emotion and and sheer repetition uh, obviously so it's yeah it's one of the challenges writing about psychedelics is is uh 
navigating the uh, the the very fine edge between banality and profundity. What perhaps I should have said at the outset is that I'm hugely skeptical mm-hmm. about psychedelics and about illegal drugs in general. Mm-hmm. And I realize there's a, a big contradiction in my, the way I lead my life as someone who drinks alcohol. But we'll, we'll mm-hmm. leave that to one side for a moment. But I just wanted to be fair and give the context. It's quite a claim to say that potentially psychedelics could have real therapeutic use. Yeah. But it's an important word, potentially. And you yourself are not a scientist. You've gone on this journey and you've done a hell of a lot of research. You've looked into the history of it. You've talked to all sorts of people and you've actually taken some of these drugs yourself. But a lot does hang on that word, potentially. Sure. Well, we're in in the middle of a process. These drugs are being trialed as therapeutic agents in England by uh, the team at Imperial College, led by Robin Carhart Harris and David Nutt. And uh, in the U.S. at places like NYU and Johns Hopkins at University of California, San Francisco, and they're in there. They've conducted uh, pilot studies and phase two studies, but the real test to prove the promise of a new drug, new psychiatric drug, is trialing it on hundreds of people at multiple sites, and that's happening now. And it isn't until we have the results of those trials that we can say with any certainty that we've got a good treatment here for depression or addiction. The signs are good. The small trials have have uh, had very powerful results, far in excess of other psychiatric medicines we've tried, far in excess of the of what the the kinds of gains the SSRI antidepressants had when they were introduced. But it's still all promise until. We get to that point, and the EMA or the FDA says, "Yes, these are these are drugs that actually work better than placebo, and should be introduced into the pharmacopoeia." So, my saying that they have great potential is based on the science that's been published so far. I mean, these are peer-reviewed studies. Uh, this isn't just speculation. Nonetheless, I'm curious as to whether you felt a responsibility writing the book, because it, to some degree, this is a defense of. Uh, and almost a championing of psychedelics and you're a hugely and widely respected figure so what you say will have impact and my worry would be that people who perhaps might be particularly vulnerable to Mm -hmm. using psychedelics of which there are presumably many might read your work and and be tempted to do things that they shouldn't i'm going to be coming across here as very puritanical yeah but, but i do mean it yeah i worry about that too i mean i think it's a completely legitimate worry if you talk about the positive potential of psychedelics there are going to be certain people many people are in desperate straits uh who will go ahead and try them and i'm sure many have and that's one of the reasons that um you know, I take pains to talk about the risks and also emphasize that the the way they're being used in this therapeutic context is very different than the way they are used recreationally. And it's really important to underscore that, that we're talking about guided psychedelic journeys. It isn't just a drug, it's a package. And And an equally important part of that package is heavy therapeutic support. So in the kinds of experiences I'm describing in the book that are going on at the universities, but also are going on underground, and and those are the experiences I have, you're working with a guide or two. They uh, prepare you very carefully before the experience 
what to expect, how to deal with any difficulties that come up, because people do have terrifying experiences. Um, people, you know, really get in touch with their shadow self, and, um, and that can be very difficult if you're alone. If a therapist prepares you properly, that's all manageable. And by prepare, I mean they, they basically help you understand the importance of surrendering to what's happening in your head. So if they'll, they'll tell you if you feel like you're dying, going crazy, melting, go with it. Don't fight it. It's when you fight that dissolution of self or ego, which often happens on a high-dose psychedelic trip, uh, that's when you'll get anxious. Uh, but if you go with it, it can be quite ecstatic and, and therapeutic. So you have that kind of preparation. Then they sit with you during the whole experience. You're never left alone. They keep an eye on your body. They make sure you don't get up and do anything stupid. They offer a, a comforting hand uh, if you're getting upset, uh, help you get up and go to the bathroom or whatever it is. And then after the experience, you sit down with them and debrief and uh, have what's called an integration session where you really make sense of what can be an extremely confusing experience and apply the lessons to the conduct of your own life. So that's not, um, you know, casual at all. And to the extent I'm saying, hey, this could have value, I'm saying that's it, not simply taking the drug under any context. So I do feel very responsible, and I always discuss risks when I talk about it. And the risks, which are not um, very serious physiologically, in other words, the drugs are... There's no lethal dose of either LSD or psilocybin, which is quite remarkable given how many legal drugs have a lethal dose and it's not that high. They're non-addictive too. They're not drugs of abuse in that sense. However, there are psychological risks. There are people who shouldn't take it. And one of the reasons to take it with a guide is that person will check you out and make sure that you're sturdy enough and make sure you're not at risk for uh, schizophrenia or any kind of psychosis because people in that situation should stay away. Although, of course, this is a guide who hasn't got the medical qualifications that a doctor would have. So you say they check them out. Yeah. And I was, I'd be hesitant to use words such as thorough or controlled precisely because these people are, are well, operating you're talking about, outside well, the Well, we system. should make the distinction. Yeah, they're underground guides. And these are, that's who I worked with because I couldn't get into any of the university trials. I, obviously, the first choice, if you were seeking this kind of therapy, would be to sign up, volunteer for one of the trials. And there are, you know, there's a waiting list for people who want to get in. There's a depression trial right here in London that's that's recruiting right now at Imperial College. Uh, there are trials for MDMA and for trauma that's, that MAPS is doing in both Europe and the United States. So you can dig around and find these trials. I worked underground with uh, guides. They were professional therapists. Although they were not MDs, they uh, had me fill out a medical questionnaire that was that was read by an MD, uh, and he's looking for, or she's looking for, um, any kind of worrisome signs that would disqualify me. And you didn't take ecstasy b because of your heart? Yeah. So I asked my own doctor. I asked my cardiologist before I embarked on this. And, um, you know, the difference between in taking psychedelics when you're 60 as opposed to 20 as you have a cardiologist that you might want to consult. <laughs> and uh, he warned me off of one of the substances I was considering. That was MDMA. And the reason was that I had a uh, something called atrial fibrillation. I've since had it fixed. But MDMA is a kind of amphetamine, so it raises heart rate. So he thought you should stay away from that one. Could you describe briefly what it was actually like taking LSD? What happened to you? Well... <sighs> 
First, I would say that it's not so different between LSD and psilocybin. The main difference is, um, obviously, dose makes a big difference in both cases, but the main difference is the length of the experience. LSD lasts a long time. What many people say about LSD is it's fantastic, and then it goes on for six more hours. <laughs> and, um, and that's a problem in the therapeutic context because, you know, the therapists want to get home for dinner too, and, uh, <laughs> and it's a long day. Which but, is a bar to potentially to, to yeah, use as therapy. It's very uh, time intensive for the therapist, but for a short amount of time, you're not going back to the therapist every week for a year. You're using a couple days of the therapist's time in a very concentrated way because you, you're not going to take these, if these drugs are approved, you won't take them every day. You won't take them every week. You'll take them once or twice in your life probably. And that's what's kind of remarkable about them. It's a transformative experience. And that in itself might not be a very good business model, of course. It's a challenging business model. I don't know how the pharmaceutical companies get their head around a drug that not only is public domain out of patent, but you're going to sell one or two pills to each patient. And how much can you charge for that pill? So I think that, yes, there are definite business model challenges. My experience with LSD, which I was very nervous about because I had read all the scare stories. I mean, I was a very reluctant psychonaut. But it was a very interesting, uh, very autobiographical experience. I, I spent many of those hours lying on my back, listening to music, um, thinking about the people in my life and, and the feelings I had for them and the things I had failed to say to them. And um, spent a lot of time thinking about my son and my parents and my wife. Your difficult grandmother. <laughs> yes, my difficult grandmother. And my, and it was just a very, it was this kind of like review and they were very present to me. I could really, especially the ones who had passed, like my grandmother, they were very present. And in general, it was very positive feelings. I didn't get in touch with any like, you know, latent anger or anything. It was all love. And, uh, and that's where I got to that point of how am I going to describe this, this, this brilliant insight I've had about love without sounding like a total idiot. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're great. They're great literary challenges to dealing with psychedelics on the page. Um, so it was uh, it was not a high dose experience. I, I I wasn't challenged in the way I became challenged on on some of the other drugs, and and I, that was partly a result for various reasons. I was a little nervous about taking a big dose and did not. But I found it. It's a very clean drug. You don't have any stomach upset. You don't have any. Uh, you just really feel it's working on your head, and that's about it. And talk to us about the experiences you had the night before yeah. you would take drugs because you describe the anxiety and you describe that, in your view, as the ego. So before I went on any of these journeys, I had a sleepless night of anxiety in the warm-up. And uh, there were two voices in my head. One of them was saying, are you crazy? You're 60 years old. You're going to go up on this mountain way off the grid with this guy and uh, you barely know. You've met him once. Literally a mountain, we should say. Literally a mountain. Oh, yeah. This was the middle of nowhere. And uh, he, he was off the grid. He, you know, he didn't... I think all he had was a um, satellite modem or something. And if something happens, what if you do have a heart attack? Is he going to call 911 and summon help at risk to his own safety? Um, and then another voice would say, but aren't you curious? Don't you want to see what you're going to learn about your mind? And you've got a book to write, by the way, buddy. And um, uh, and it would ping pong back and forth. And much to my relief, the voice that said, just do it, uh, prevailed. 
And I came eventually to recognize that other voice with making all the rational arguments mm. <laughs> as my ego. Um, you know, our ego is this voice in our heads that protects us, defends us, and uh, but disconnects us too. And um, and I realized the ego doesn't like the whole idea of psychedelics. The ego f is threatened by psychedelics mm. because indeed psychedelics directly challenge the the sovereignty of the ego. I would say that psychedelics and not having tried them myself and, and having sort of, as I intimated earlier, an inbuilt skepticism about the whole thing, I, I would say that they take us out of our humanity, that they're fiddling with our agency. You describe it as ego, but I, I kind of think I've got a problem with that. Tell me why you think I shouldn't. I won't tell you why you shouldn't. If that's how you feel, you should stay away from them. I'm not, I'm, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not trying to uh, tell anybody what to think. I, I would only ask that you examine this distinction between the uh, the chemicals your own brain produces uh, and the moods that result therefrom and the illusions or or um, perceptions. I mean, all all mental activity is chemically mediated um, and electrically mediated. And why is that superior to taking uh, an, an exogenous chemical, um, something produced by a mushroom, for many cultures, the fact that nature was providing these chemicals was a, was a sign of incredible sacredness uh, and connection to the natural world. But I also think there's a Puritan idea here that we need to work for our states of enlightenment. And I, I see that, but I think it's worth questioning. You know, the idea is that uh, if you climb to the top of the mountain and get this extraordinary view, that's superior than the guy who landed on a helicopter. And uh, and in some ways, psychedelics are shortcuts to the mountain, but you do get the same view. Well, it's rather like in nature photography and bird photography. I take photographs of birds, and if the photograph has been staged, if you go to a hide where someone is feeding the little yeah. owl, even right. though it's totally lawful, it's cheating. It, it feels like it's cheating on some level, yeah. and I wonder whether that then does impact the artistic quality of the photograph. Certainly if someone knows that the photograph has been staged, I think it takes something away from it. Yeah. This isn't false, though. I mean, these experiencers are not in the molecule. They're in your head. Mm. The molecule is starting a process. Um, the molecule is a, a very unspecific mental amplifier. A very important distinction between psychedelics and, and most other psychoactive drugs you know, the, the effects that cocaine would have on you or an opiate or even caffeine, it's pretty consistent across people. It's a physiological change that we all, we know how that feels, I think, recognize it. The effects that people have on psychedelics are as variable as people themselves. Um, so if you and I both took the same drug, same dose, same room, right, sitting right here, right now, um, we would have substantially different experiences. And they would be the product, not of the psilocybin, but of your mind, okay. your unconscious, your experiences, your, you know, your history, and, uh, and so would mine. There are those, Michael, who would say that there's not much difference between chocolate cake and a psychedelic drug, They're but both external influences. Mm -hmm. But of course, you probably wouldn't be writing a book about chocolate cake. I know you've written book, books about I've written about several food, books about food. <laughs> about food, which is true. But there is obviously, let's be serious, just because there may be a sliding scale, there is a profound difference between what a chocolate cake can induce yeah. in you and what a psychedelic drug can induce. 
Yeah, um, but what they both do is they're things from nature that we take into our bodies that affect us. And uh, food, food affects mood also in all sorts of ways that we're just beginning to learn about. And they're part of our engagement with the natural world. Um, it's, it's a very curious... I mean, the reason I got into looking at altered states of consciousness is it, it, it grew out of my, my passion for plants and our engagement mm. with plants and what we use them for. And we use them for food and we use them for beauty and we use them for uh, fiber, for clothing. Uh, and then we use them to change consciousness. The desire to change consciousness is a universal human desire. It's a very curious one. It wouldn't seem to be adaptive, but probably is. Uh, so you have um, caffeine helps us work harder, focus, that kind of thing. It's, you know, helped make the Industrial Revolution possible. It changed us in profound ways. Well, it helps me stay up for, in the middle of the night for my national radio shows yeah. between one and five in the morning. Otherwise, I, I'm not sure I'd still be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a tool. Again, yeah. it's a tool. And we figured out a way to use it. And it's more or less harmless. Um it obviously has much less risk than a psychedelic or an opiate or those kind of things, but it is also addictive. It takes away your agency. Um, it affects your sleep. It changes you. I mean, your your baseline is different because you are presumably, you know, have a dependent relationship with caffeine. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Don't judge me, Michael. Stop it. <laughs> I'm off. I can be righteous right now because I haven't had any caffeine for six weeks, only as part of an experiment. And I'm planning to go back on it, but uh, it put me in touch with how different we are uh, on caffeine, um, and uh, and that we don't even see it because it's such a transparent drug. Psychedelics are not transparent. We don't tend to judge it either because it's lawful. Well, maybe it's lawful because we we've accepted it and we've decided it uh, lubricates the wheels of commerce and capitalism and modern life rather than mucks them up the way some drugs do. So it's very interesting the drugs that we choose to make legal or not. It's very hard to make a rational case for some of these decisions. I mean, alcohol, for example, which I don't, I certainly don't want to prohibit. Uh, nevertheless, does a lot more social and and uh, medical harm than uh, psychedelics, for example. So why do you think psychedelics are illegal? History. I mean, you know, I mean, I think history has a lot to do with it. Um, and the history of psychedelics, uh, which is a little different than people think, was a period of, um, well, if you want to go far enough back, they were used in ancient cultures, many ancient cultures, as part of religious observance, as part of healing ceremonies, divination, things like that. In the modern context, uh, we had, when these drugs kind of burst upon the scene beginning really in the 1950s. They were researched heavily. They were not illegal. They were believed to be important psychiatric, you know, wonder drugs in many cases. There were six international conferences on LSD in the 50s and early 60s. A thousand papers were published, 40,000 research subjects. So nobody thought about banning them then. They, They were just, it was just, let's research this. Here we've got something that could really help people and teach us something about the mind. And LSD, of course, was only invented or discovered in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. 19, well, it's first synthesized in 38, but not recognized that there was anything psychoactive until 43. And then it's kind of released. Uh, Sandoz, the, the um, pharmaceutical company where it was invented, didn't know what it was good for and basically offered it to any researcher who, who uh, for free as long as they would report back on what they discovered. And this began this worldwide research program uh, that goes through the 50s into the till Sandoz withdraws it in the early 60s. So it became illegal, though, because there was 
it was used recklessly. It was embraced by the counterculture. It escaped the lab, as people say, and had a profound effect on the counterculture that was very challenging. To... How would you define recklessly, though? Well, you know, when psychedelics arrive in our culture, they didn't come with an instruction manual, and they were weird, powerful drugs, and people didn't know quite how to use them. So you had things going on in the 60s where, you know, the acid tests, where they would just be put them in a punch bowl, and people were dosed without their permission. That's reckless. It's, it's, it's cruel, actually. But that was considered like, hey, that's a, that's a cool thing to do. People took them in really bad environments, you know, on the, on the New York City subway, you know, not no. a good place to take no. a psychedelic. Um, and I think it's because people didn't really understand them. And some people had wonderful experiences. And uh, so you, it's, it was very mixed bag, but it wasn't done with a lot of deliberateness or care. And this led to some bad outcomes. Um, there were people who, no doubt, who committed suicide on psychedelics. Um, there were people who ended up in psych wards, uh, who had psychotic breaks. This, this really happened. People walking into traffic because their judgment was impaired. So there began a backlash uh, that, that really became a full-scale moral panic about these drugs. Um, President Nixon believed that they were sapping the will of American youth, uh, their willingness to fight in the war. He thought that psychedelics were part, helped fuel the anti-war movement, and he may well have been right. They did have a profound effect on society. They contributed to a, what we call the generation gap, a real effort on the part of young people to create their own culture apart from adult culture and reject the values of adult culture. So adult culture reacted, uh, you know, um, fiercely and banned them. Uh, and the media turned against them and they had terrible press beginning in 1965 after having incredibly good press before that. Now we're back in a good press um, cycle. It could change again. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. But given the risks of taking these drugs in the wrong circumstances and if you're the wrong person or you have the wrong mindset, would you endorse them becoming legal again? Because the way in which you took them is very different to yeah. the way that they might be taken if they were made legal. And 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 by being made legal, in, in a sense, they would then be endorsed by the state. Yeah. And I think that's very different even than decriminalization. Um, you know, I live in California and we've watched the what happened with the legalization of cannabis, um, which is a mixed bag. The sky has not fallen. Um, however, when big corporations get involved, and as soon as you legalize a drug, that will happen, not only are they made available to people who might want them or have good use for them, but they're pushed on people. And uh, we have very aggressive 
cannabis marketing now and cannabis is being put in forms that make it including your chocolate cake now can be had with cannabis um that make them really serious drugs and serious experiences you're trying to tempt me aren't you <laughs> <laughs> so um i don't I don't think the time is here for legalizing psilocybin outside of a medical context. I don't believe they should be criminalized. I don't think the individual should go to jail for possessing, growing, or using a mushroom. Um, Just to spell out to those of us who haven't quite grasped the difference between a drug being made legal yeah. and decriminalization. So decriminalization means it's just a very low priority for law enforcement, and that's made clear, or that there is no penalty, or the penalty is minor, it's a misdemeanor, uh, it's a traffic ticket kind of thing, versus uh, the state saying this is legal, we're now going to tax it. Right. Corporations can either with a license or without can start selling it to people. They can advertise it. They can um, come up with clever new delivery systems and do what capitalism does, which is create needs and um, and then feed them. And, and decriminalization in a decriminalized world. You still wouldn't have you, any kind of uh, would, sales. Legal would dealers sales. still be punished? Uh, I don't know. It probably There'd probably be some sort of up to a certain point. No. Um, but or not, or maybe dealers would be. It would encourage people to grow their own mushrooms, which people can do. In what time? Or find them. You know, the mushrooms grow all over the UK. In the time that remains to us, I, I want to kind of return us to consciousness and and your experience of mind altered states taking some of these drugs. Was it interesting to you, Michael, given your love of plants and your fascination by plants and the fact that you've written about plants that under an induced state, I think when you were taking mushrooms, mm -hmm. the plants developed different dimensions that yes. you felt that they were speaking back to you and also in one case and i don't know whether this was mushrooms but you felt like you were in a cage but the plant was able to go out of the cage something that yeah. you were unable to do but that was in reality, ayahuasca and, yeah. and, and in an induced state sorry that was in ayahuasca uh ayahuasca is a plant drug and and people often have planty imagery with it um it's a combination of two plants from the amazon and um I had, you know, I've always been interested in the human engagement with the plant world, and I'm a passionate gardener. And one of the things that psychedelics did for me was connect me to plants in a way I'd never felt connected before. I'd always had a sense that they had some agency, that they affected us, and we didn't just affect them. And that we co-evolved with things like corn and tulips and, and cannabis, and uh, we changed one another in the process. And I understood that in an intellectual way, but uh, on these couple of these trips, but one in particular I'm thinking of, I understood it on a visceral level, that I had a sense of the plants in my garden being conscious, um, not the way we're conscious exactly, not self-conscious, but aware, aware of me, returning my gaze and um it was the most uncanny thing and that you know we tend to think we're the only thinking feeling subject when we walk through nature and everything else is some mute object some people even think as you say in the book of other people as objects, as objects yes and that that's that's the ego that's the ego's thing that i'm the subject and everything else is an object and therefore i can use it exploit it do what i want with it uh, and that's very powerful, and it's and it's enabled us to control nature and do a lot of things um, and exploit people. But here, you just have the sense that you are—it is more like you than you ever imagined before. 
And it was quite a beautiful thing. The plants, you know, were very benign. Um, they appreciated what I had done for them, I think. And, How could um, they be anything other <laughs> to you? <laughs> I did plant them. I gave them this gave them this habitat. But I felt more connected to nature than I had ever had before. And that reaction is not uncommon on psychedelics. In fact, it's even been measured. Uh, the, the psychologists who have a scale for everything have a nature connectedness scale. Uh, how much do you feel part of nature or how much do you feel you stand outside of nature? And, uh, and that changes on psychedelics. One of the most fascinating passages of the book is where you talk explicitly about consciousness, try, trying to understand what it really is. And it seems to me a, a really exciting area of science, something that we probably haven't quite totally got to grips with. No. One of the things that you say is that arguably our sense of reality normal consciousness the sort of consciousness that you and i are experiencing now unless you are secretly on one of these psychedelic mm -hmm. drugs and i'm taking it that you're not i'm not <laughs> one of the things you say, i have used no psychedelics since i published the book one of the things that you say is is that consciousness our perception of reality on a day-to-day -day basis is perhaps just a controlled hallucination that's a yeah. d deeply provocative thing and of course what it does is it suggests that maybe our everyday experiences are not much different or not, or not superior hierarchically than say our dream state yeah so this is um actually kind of a, a current theory in neuroscience right now and it goes under the heading predictive coding or predictive processing that we take in the minimum amount of information from our environment through the senses and then make an educated guess as to what we're seeing. So if we see a certain pattern of green in this kind of fractal design from thick, thick limbs to thinner to leaves, and we project the image of a tree. And then our senses help us correct it. Uh, and so to a re remarkable extent, what we experience is a product of our imaginations. It's been informed by experience before, it's based on a lot of history, and it's checked for accuracy. But it's a it sort of neuroefficiency. It is. It's it's a it's much easier than having to rebuild the picture from scratch every time. You know, you remember how computers would build an image very slowly. Um, mm. They learn to do this too. We, I mean, we've taught them to do this too, where they they infer uh, as much as they take in. And um, this kind of uh, predictive coding is screwed up by psychedelics, and you get sort of in touch with it because suddenly you're seeing things that don't exist. Your mind is projecting faces on clouds, uh, for example. Uh, suddenly you take a chaotic field like that, and we're seeing images. And you get a sense of how that process works. That, that, or the paranoid fantasy, too, is another... A belief that you're imposing on on reality. So one of the, one of the, I think the really exciting things about psychedelics is that you know one way to understand a complex system is disorder it in some sense, and then it reveals its secrets the way a particle accelerator does with a particle. So there's I think there's a lot to be learned about consciousness from this, and that we operate on the basis of priors, prior beliefs, prior perceptions. Uh, you bring your uh, beliefs about psychedelics uh, or drugs um, to the reading of my book, and you read it differently than someone else would. So we're not blank slates by any means. Um, we're very crowded slates. And one of the things psychedelics do is dissolve those beliefs for a period of time. That's why maybe you should consider it. <laughs> <laughs> Just very finally, now that you've shaken the snow globe and you've gone on this journey, has it changed your understanding fundamentally of the world and of yourself? 
Yeah, it has in some important ways. I had uh, the most profound experience I had was of uh, a, a complete ego dissolution on psilocybin in a guided trip where I felt very safe and had a high dose. And I saw what I recognized as myself, my ego, burst into a little cloud of post-it notes and then saw it spread out on the ground like a coat of paint. Yet I beheld this scene from some new perspective that was completely untroubled by it. I don't know what that new perspective was, but I got a distance on my ego or sense of self that I had never had before. And that I think that's been useful. I can kind of recognize it when he's up to his old tricks or getting defensive or, or reacting in a defensive way. And that perspective, I think, has proven to be really useful in day-to-day -day life and, and, and especially dealing with hard situations. Sometimes I'll sit there and someone will be attacking me about something I've written or something, and I'll think to myself, hey, I don't feel defensive. <laughs> and that's a very freeing sense. And will you do more psychedelics? You know, if they were legal or decriminalized, I would. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it could be a useful part of my life. I can totally imagine doing them every year on my birthday. Now that I'm so out of the closet about it, I have to be really careful, and 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 I don't want to jeopardize my my guides by um, being in touch with them uh, at this point, just in case anyone's watching. What does your wife think of this? My wife Judith has has undergone an evolution. When I first proposed this, and I said I was going to write this book, she was she had a lot of misgivings because I was going to. We've been together a very long time, and I was going to have this big experience, potentially life changing, that she wouldn't be part of. And you know, all our big experiences have been shared. In the end, she came around. She she it hadn't occurred to her I might change for the better. <laughs> Michael Pollan, it's an absolute pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you, Matt. This week's episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Michael Pollan and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou. Michael's book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics, is out now. Subscribe to this podcast and to our YouTube channel for more talks, interviews and debates with thinkers like Stephen Pinker, Madeleine Albright and Yuval Noah Harari. And visit us at howtoacademy.com to find out more about who's appearing on our stage this autumn. Thanks for listening.